Austin policy. For more information on that conference, visit www.israellobbycon.org. And that does it for the show today. Thanks for listening. This is Saeed, executive producer and host of Arab Voices. Until we meet next week, peace on earth. Show your support for KBOO programming by picking up the special limited edition KBOO Music That Moves You Silicone Collapsible Water Bottle. It's the perfect accessory to keep you hydrated while KBOO keeps you moving. Get yours now at kboo.fm slash moves bottle. compassion we have towards animals, the more compassion we're going to have towards other people. If you can value them all, you, you really value yourself as well. So even if you don't care about animals, the, the things we do that hurt animals end up hurting ourselves. It's almost kind of a dominion type issue where we feel we need to control everything. Dominion means stewardship, to take care of. What would a cow think about satisfying our habit? The challenge lies with looking at suffering from the perspective of the person or individual suffering. Welcome to Voices for the Animals. Uh, this is your host, Noah Bristol. Julianne Schwartz, Michelle Coppola, and I bring you this show on the fourth Friday of every month at 10 a.m., or you can listen online anytime at kboo.fm slash Voices for the Animals. We are on the air to give voice to the urgent animal welfare and animal rights issues happening locally, regionally, and worldwide. Whether you're an animal rights activist already, a keyboard warrior online, a vegan cupcake lover, an animal lover, a volunteer, or just tuning in today completely by accident and know nothing about animal rights, you're in the right place. Today, I have the special privilege of being in studio in person with Ingrid Newkirk, the legendary founder and president of People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, or as most of us know it, PETA, which is about to celebrate its 40th anniversary this March. With about 400 employees and six and a half million supporters worldwide, PETA is the largest animal rights group in the world. 
Since it was founded, PETA has exposed horrific animal abuse in laboratories, and their campaigns have led to canceled funding, closed facilities, seizure of animals, and charges filed by the U.S. Department of Agriculture. PETA has also closed the largest horse slaughter operation in North America, convinced dozens of major designers and hundreds of companies to stop using fur, ended all car crash tests on animals, reformed problematic animal pounds, helped schools switch to alternatives to dissection, and provided millions of people with information on vegetarianism, companion animal care, and countless other issues. PETA's slogan is, animals are not ours to eat, wear, experiment on, or use for entertainment or abuse in any other way. Welcome to the show, Ingrid. Thank you, Noah. Thanks for having me. It's so wonderful to have you here with us. And this isn't your first time in Portland, is it? It isn't, but it's my first time speaking as if I have the deepest voice in the world. So forgive me, I don't usually talk this way. Well, we will keep that in mind and we won't blame you for it. You're in Portland and you're going to be at Powell's Books tonight talking about your new book, Animal Kind, which our listeners, if they this is their first time hearing about it, they won't get to attend because this isn't live. But you can tell them a bit about your new book and why you chose to write it. Why was it important? I think it's very important to realize that animals are underestimated constantly. People have very little idea of how smart they are. You know, we go looking for intelligent life in space. Every week we see news stories about, well, there's water on this planet, so maybe there's intelligent life. Intelligent life is all around us on this planet. But what we do we do? We eat it, we wear it, we experiment on it, and we put it in chains and make it stand on its head for the circus. So, you know, we're not very tolerant and we're um, pretty oblivious to how clever animals are. They are um, extraordinary in so many ways. So I wrote this book because even people like me who see things about animals every single day and learn things about animals constantly have um, other things that we could know. And I learned a lot writing this book about everybody from, and I say everybody knowingly, from elephants to mice to dogs, you name it. And so it was a great exercise. So the first part of the book is all about things you might not have known about animals that you will find jaw-dropping, I hope. And the second part is knowing all these things now, how will it inform how you relate to animals and will it change some of your behaviors that perhaps unknowingly you are engaging in that do have a direct impact, a negative impact on animals? And what are the options? What's one of your favorite things you learned while writing this book? Oh, there are too many. Um, <laughs> one of the things I learned is that reindeer actually change the color of their eyes. So oh. in summer, they're gold, and in winter, they're blue. And they actually manufacture their own vitamin D, even though where they live, there isn't very much sunshine. Mm -hmm. And they can grow their horns at an enormously rapid rate once they start going. But on the home front, I think one of my favorite things is I learned that the part of the dog's brain that lights up when you give them a treat is exactly the same part of the brain of a man who you give him a raise. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're more similar than a lot of us like to think. I'm not commenting, I'm just reporting. <laughs> but I learned a lot about elephants and I really thought I knew almost everything about elephants because, you know, we've been busy rescuing elephants in India and in this country, getting them out of zoos and circuses 
and um, I work with a lot of elephant experts. I knew that, um, for example, their rumbles can go underground subsonically for a mm. mile or two, and they can warn a herd that's all that way away that something is happening. Maybe Chinese people are coming in to take the babies for a zoo in China, which is what happens. Or maybe they found water during a drought. But what I didn't know is in places like Sri Lanka, where some elephants, not all, because some are used for logging, some are free to roam around the edge of the ocean, that just for the pure joy of it, they jump into the sea and they use their trunks as a snorkel. And they can go 20 to 30 miles just for the pleasure of it all, swimming around. <laughs> There's so many miracles to be discovered in the creatures we inhabit this earth with. Yeah, it's also, their trunks are so extraordinary. You know, they kiss with their trunks. And if they meet an elephant they haven't seen for many years, and this you see at sanctuaries where one elephant has been rescued and 15 years later, another elephant that she grew up with has been rescued, they entwine their trunks and they kiss. And they, if an elephant is sick, another elephant will use her trunk to stroke the other one's face. But they also, their trunks are so sensitive, they can pick up a paper clip with the tip of their trunk and use it just the way we would use maybe our thumb and our forefinger. I mean, all animals wow. are just extraordinary. Yeah, I've seen videos of those elephant reunions. It's definitely enough to move me to tears. PETA obviously has a storied history, and I think most everyone you stop on the street and ask, have you ever heard of PETA? They'll probably say yes. They might have a lot of misinformed knowledge about PETA, but they probably have heard of it. So can you just tell me what are one or two of PETA's accomplishments through the last 40 years that you're most proud of? Well, it's funny because you, what you said is so true. A lot of people go, oh, isn't that the group that throws paint on <laughs> people in fur coats? And you think, well, actually, we've never done that, but we have <laughs> We have stood on runways covered in fur-covered coats, and we've walked down the street in them and so on. But um, I think one of my favorite things is how we have managed to wake up youth. We have probably, I think it is definitely, actually, the biggest youth following of any social group. I'm not sure what that says, but we do. And those kids growing up today, they don't want leather, they don't want wool, they don't want fur. They don't understand why we are force-feeding animals in laboratories. They certainly don't run out onto the street when the circus comes to town, the way kids of my generation, I'm 70 now, they run out onto the street all excited. No, they've got virtual reality, they've got the internet. You know, you can even dive with animals on virtual reality and never harm a hair on their head. So um, I think youth is one thing. Our, our litigation, our, we bring lawsuits to challenge the idea that only humans have rights. And we've brought two important ones um, in the last couple of years. One was to try to get the orcas out of SeaWorld. And we realized that the 13th Amendment to the US Constitution uh, it says that you can't have slavery, the institution, but it doesn't say against whom. It doesn't say just human slavery. It just says the institution of slavery is illegal. So we went to court to say, these guys are slaves, and we name them by name. You know, they're in, they've been taken from the ocean, shoved in this tank, cement box, basically. They're wearing their teeth down on the um, bars underwater, and they're deprived of a life. We lost it, but it's, you know, in social movements, doesn't matter which one you lose, you lose, you lose, and then you win. Eventually, you have to throw that gravel down to pave the road. 
and we brought another lawsuit for a monkey called Naruto. And this was to push the envelope a bit because under US copyright law, the individual who takes a photograph is the owner of the photograph, not the individual who owns the equipment. So a famous photographer went out into the Indonesian jungle and he started to take photographs and he left his camera there, stepped away, and Naruto, this monkey, came, could see his reflection in the lens and kept snapping pictures of himself with different <laughs> expressions. And we said, hang on, he owns the copyright, pay him. So his area, which is being encroached upon, can get some funds to uh, keep people out. And we had to go, we had to litigate. In the end, we lost that one too, really, but we didn't because we settled. And the photographer agreed to give 25% of his take to preserve the Indonesian monkey habitat. And now other photographers that are doing it. Sounds like a win to me. Yeah. As similar to the work that I believe Steve Wise is doing, litigating for the rights of chimpanzees, right? He's trying, yes, um, admirably, to get them declared persons. Mm -hmm. And so far, he hasn't had any luck. But as I say, you just keep struggling on. And one day it will happen. In two other court cases, one in Brazil and one in India, a judge in each case has made really wonderful decisions and pronouncements from the bench. In Brazil, there was an elephant called, um, I think her name was Ramba, and she had been taken away from some hideous situation, moved to a sanctuary, and the government of Brazil said, you now have to, the sanctuary has to pay a big fee now because um, it's a transfer fee of a commodity. Mm -hmm. And they appealed it, and the judge said, Ramba is not a commodity, she's a refugee. Then in India, there's another case where a trainer, they're called Mahouts, this trainer was trying to uh, regain possession of an abused elephant who had gone to a sanctuary. And the judge ruled, this is very recent, that when it comes to his rights, the Mahouts' rights and the elephant's rights, the elephant has the right to live her life free from servitude. So we're getting there. That feels good to have a court say that when we, when a lot of us have been saying the same thing for a long time. And you've seen 40 plus years of animal rights, both in the law and in just people's minds and in society that evolve over 40 years. So I'm curious from your perspective, how do you see the next 30 or 40 years going? I'm not very good at crystal balls, but <laughs> I, I do look back a lot and I see what's happened in other movements, everything from disability movements, civil rights, women's rights, children's rights. And I'm sure that they must have, at the time before things started to change, have felt pretty thwarted and, and thinking, this will never happen. And yet it did. All these, I mean, we're not out of the woods yet, but look at the things that have happened. Mm -hmm. And I can look back 40 years with animal rights and see that everyone wanted a fur when we started. All little girls wanted to grow up and have arrived by getting a fur. And nobody had any plant-based milk. You know, there weren't any Beyond Burgers in the store. Um, only really pr pretty much religious people were vegetarian, not even vegan. That was not even a word. And animals in the laboratory, they had free reign. And now we're making inroads there, which I'm very excited about. So yeah, things have changed and I do believe that we're on a trajectory that will mean that more and more things will change. Now, a concept that I've seen PETA talk about a lot is speciesism. And for our listeners who don't know what that is and why it might be important, can you tell us about that? 
Yeah, that's really important. To me, that's the overriding problem that we have is that human beings seem to think that we are gods and that it's just sort of like the old, you know, white people are better than black people and men are better than women. And it wasn't that long ago that women couldn't own property, they couldn't vote, their husbands could rape them. I mean, you look back and you think, really? Yes. And so we see how we are using and abusing animals today. And that is speciesism. We're discriminating against them strictly on the basis that they're not the same species as us. And so what does it matter? You know, what does it matter what you look like? There's a person in there and you have all of us, all of us have a heart. We have eyes. We have thoughts. We have emotions. And we tend to grow up thinking, oh, you know, the dog wants to go out. What a pain in the neck. And where's his life? You know, all these animals, did they want to be in the zoo? Did they want to be taken away from their homes? Does the sheep want to be shorn with some man hitting her in the head with a, a metal clipper, which is what happens? You know, all these things. No, they are not. I know it's said nicely, fur baby, but they're not fur babies. They're mostly whole individuals, grown up, and they watch you so intently. They have to watch our, our species to make sure that they know not to put a step wrong. And when they put a foot wrong, they get yelled at rather than have an understanding that they just didn't get it. They've got a hard road to hoe in, in a human-dominated world, and we need to get away from domination and that idea of bullying and oppressing and being violent when we don't need to. Powerfully said. And speciesism is built yeah. right into our language. We hear phrases that are speciesistic all the time. Can you tell us a bit more <laughs> about that and the efforts that PETA has put in to combat that? Well, language is very important. You know, some people um, had a good laugh when we came out with alternative idioms <laughs> <laughs> saying, you know, you don't want to say there's more than one way to skin a cat. And your children grow up hearing that, thinking that it's normal. Um, or take the bull by the horns, which is all about bull wrestling, rodeo, bullfights. Just find some new things, you know, take the rose by the thorns. Now, <laughs> um, if we start putting those into to language, into our, our our regular talk, I think that is a very good thing. And I grew up in the feminist movement, the women's movement, and it was very important to us, and we were mocked too, to change the way a woman was referred to. And I believe we have that same, it, it's not the most important thing in the world, but it's important. For listeners who are just tuning in, you are listening to Voices for the Animals, hosted by me, Noah Bristol, and I'm lucky enough today to be sitting in studio with Ingrid Newkirk, the founder and president of People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, PETA. I personally have heard PETA receive a lot of iron criticism, not only from the general public, but even from quite a few animal rights activists. And a lot of the reason for this, as I have found upon researching these claims, and I think PETA is really good about addressing these claims, is that it's simply a lot of misinformation about PETA's stances and practices. Do you see this a lot? Is there any specific misinformation that you'd like to take this chance to clear up for our listeners? Oh, it, it depends what it is. And there are so many little bits and pieces that float around the Internet. And in fact, um, I tweet sometimes. I'm not a very good tweeter, but I tweet sometimes something. For example, we're on the Tall Volcanic Island at the moment. The Tall Volcano has erupted, as people know. 
and uh, we're the only group that's been able to get on the island. I wish everybody could get there, but we've we've persisted, and we've been pulling animals off. So I post a picture of a cat who's pulled from the ashes with one of our people holding her, getting her onto the boat. And what do I get back? Sizzling bacon pictures, yeah. you know. Or I get, are you going to kill her? That's this is one of those things that just never goes away. And we will respond. We will say, if you really want to know why we euthanize, because that's one of these things that floats about. Mm -hmm. It was started by Rick Berman, I think, and they meet people, this um, Center for Consumer Protection. But um, it's now picked up. It's got this little life of its own. So we say, here's a video. You can watch what we do out in the road. And the fact is, our shelter, we only have one. And I, I read things saying, all your shelters. I think, no, we only have one. It's in Lower Virginia, Upper North Carolina area, and it's in a poverty pocket. And people do not have the money. Many are unemployed. There are other things going on with them. They don't have the money when their sometimes beloved old dog or cat has come to the end of their lives, but is still hanging on. They don't have the money to go to the vet for that final courtesy of, mm -hmm. of being relieved of pain. And they'll come to us, and with no charge, we will always take them in and they can be with their animal in those final moments. One of the reasons we have to do that is because we are surrounded by no-kill shelters. So people say to us, we went to the shelter up the street or in the next county or wherever, and they said, no, uh, they don't take in animals for euthanasia. Well, then what do you do? So we made the decision. There are enough shelters around us who we can pass on without even bringing through the door cute, the fluffy, the housebroken, the lovely, you know, we can pass those on to these big open admission shelters. But for us, we also run this service. And that's why we euthanize a lot of animals who have nowhere to go and for whom the door has been slammed at other places. And all they're on the internet, you can see them and then tell me, once you look at them, would you say, oh, well, it's wrong to kill them, turn them away. I, I would never be able to live with myself doing that. Sounds like your organization meets a need that no one else is willing to meet. It's absolutely true because this no-kill thing sounds so good. <clears throat> and yet, if you look at it, what happens? If you want to run a no-kill facility, you have to do certain things. You are at capacity almost immediately because there are so many dogs and cats and rabbits who don't have a place to go. And not everybody cares. They're just saying, take my animal. You know, I'm moving. I'm being evicted. I'm being transferred. I don't want them anymore. They urinate on the rug. Take them. If you say no as soon as you're at capacity, which is immediately, what happens to them? People dump them on the street. They, you know, do all sorts of things with them. We've had terrible cases of them killing them badly, you know, shooting them or worse, far worse. And if they're let out on the street, they carry on breeding. So you're making more and more and more animals that you can't place. They also impose a fee. So they'll say to someone, you have to pay $35 or whatever it is to bring your animal in. <clears throat> and those people don't care or they don't have it. And then they reduce their hours. So that if you're not there, you know, between 10 and 4 in the afternoon, and if you work, you're not, then too bad, closed. So we're open 24 hours, 7, 24, 24, 7, 365 days a week. And uh, we'll take all comers, the worst. Thank you for clearing that up for us and our listeners.
Now, I asked our listeners through our Voices for the Animals Facebook page what they would like to ask you or tell you. So I'm going to go through a few of those. Uh, Danny Rukin wants to know what led you to make Fighting for Animal Rights your life's mission. Oh, I don't know. I just don't like injustice, and I've always been drawn to animals. Uh, When I was born, there was a dog in the house already. I loved him to pieces, and he loved me. And we did everything together. We were like sister and brother. So I didn't really differentiate between him and a human child. It's just we were in it. We were together. And I always seem to empathize with those who can't do anything to get out of their situation, their plight. And so seeing animals abused is just, it, it just eats into my craw and I have to do something about it. I, I couldn't turn away. So started the small group and now have the Animal Kind book to help other people see what they can do. Perfect segue. Animal Kind is available anywhere people can purchase books, I imagine. Anywhere. And Amazon.com. It's at Powell's. It's all over the place. Perfect. And next, Bonnie Clapper wants you to know how grateful people are to you for leading the way on so many issues and saving lives. Thank you, Bonnie. I mean, the thing is, it's not just the people who work at PETA. It's not just me. It's every single person like you who helps in some way. I try to do three things a day, at least, that are not part of my job that help animals. And that could be leaving a leaflet somewhere, talking to somebody, calling in, writing a letter, doing something. I leave leaflets, the vegan starter kit, for example, in the back of an Uber or the back of the plane seat uh, at the gym if I ever get there, which is (laughs) unlikely at this stage. Um, But I think there are so many things that you can do. It's not just signing petitions. But every buying choice you make is the power of the purse, is that you're teaching companies what you will buy and what you won't buy. And then if you go to their website and tell them why you're buying or you're not buying, they tabulate those things. That helps. So it's everybody out there doing anything, teachers, students, everybody, lawyers who are making new law, anybody. Well, you just somehow magically answered the next question I was going to ask perfectly, which was from Tanya Moore, who wanted to know what the most important thing each of us can do every day to change the world for animals was. But if you wanted to add anything, you can, but I think your answer was perfect. Well, that's kind, but we all eat, uh, we all wear clothes, um, we all buy things, and we all you know, shampoo our hair and clean our carpets maybe or something like that. And we all choose our amusements. And even if you're on holiday, you go on vacation. And um, the hotel has a parrot in a cage. You can say something. Or somebody tries to get you to have your photograph taken with a baby tiger. You can object. You can, you know, if you see a roadside zoo, go and report what you see in it. So even in unlikely ways, investments. You can invest in companies that Mm -hmm. are good to animals and the earth. And peaceful companies or you can invest in others that aren't but I think educating others with social media is one of the most important things that any of us can do because when people see those videos and they can be the sad really cruel horrible videos or they can be the upbeat wonderful videos that show you how fabulous animals are how clever they their eyes are opened more so every single one of us is really an ambassador for the animals and a vital force for the animals and we mustn't underestimate our power. Thank you for empowering not only yourself and all the people involved with PETA but everyone listening right now. 
Uh, Danny West, I think, is one of those people, and she wants to be you when she grows up, she says. Uh, K.M. Larson wants to know about some of your greatest challenges with PETA. Well, I think the greatest challenge, which we probably can't overcome, because nobody can in any movement, is a lack of empathy that some people have. So, you know, hunters send me photographs of they've spelled out obscenities with rabbit bodies or bird bodies or something. And it just shows they don't have any empathy for human beings that they're sending the letter to or the photograph to, as well as to the animals they've just slaughtered. So I heard years ago that there is a thing in the human brain, it's probably in other brains too, called the mirror neuron. And if it's not properly developed, then you can't feel empathy. You can't put yourself in the place of another. So those of us who can put ourselves in the place of another, it's a sad thing for us, but it's also a vital thing because we have to counteract those others. But really, most people, that's unusual. So most people are not psychotic killers. Most people aren't, you know, heartless. Most people are reachable. And that's why I say, even if you think, my family is never going to change. Well, they might if you find different strategies for opening their hearts and their eyes, their minds. I'll have to introduce you to my family. <laughs> I'm right. I'll be right there. <laughs> uh, we're coming to a close for the show, but before we do that, is there anything else you'd like our listeners to know, Ingrid? Other than buy the book Animal Kind. <laughs> <laughs> that for sure. And don't just get it for yourself, please. Uh, try to get it in the local libraries especially mm -hmm. school libraries, but any libraries. And please, um, if you're thinking you might have to buy gifts during the year, an educational gift like that doesn't hurt. So stock up. But no, I mean, I wrote it because I wanted it to be an educational tool. But really, I just think, don't feel you're alone. You're not alone. You're, there are so many people in this community of animal caring souls. And there are a million ways that you can be part of a very strong movement. And the more we do, the quicker it will happen that we have animal liberation. Thank you so much for joining me today, Ingrid, and for powering through your sore throat to spread this information. Thank you, Noah, very much. This has been Noah Bristol with Voices for the Animals, speaking with Ingrid Newkirk, founder and president of People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. Until next time. The preceding program was produced at KBU Community Radio in Portland, Oregon. More audio can be found online at kboo.fm.
Welcome to another episode of Film at 11 here on Community Radio, KBOO Portland. We start off with Jeff Godsell revisiting the Martin Scorsese film, The King of Comedy. At the 